Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Central. How you doing? This is Dusty Rhodes and welcome to Tech Radio, the number one Irish tech podcast with all the latest in tech from around Ireland and of course around the world. Remember, as well as our show on air with RTE and online via the website or your favourite podcasting app, we keep you up to date with all things tech every day with hourly updates and daily newsletters, which you can grab for free at our website, techcentral.ie. This week, we have an amazing chat for you with one of Ireland's leaders on the topic of, wait for it, cyborgs. Shane Patrick McNamee is an independent researcher, policy analyst within the Irish Civil Service and a blogger at theundisciplined.com. His area of interest is looking at our new world of virtual and augmented reality robots and cyborgs and wonders where all of these wonderful new powerful technologies sit within the law. Sit back and be fascinated because Lyle Kitson caught up with him recently at Republica to ask about the concept of the cyborg and where the term came from. Oh God, no, I wouldn't want to give a, a, a definite uh, answer as to where the term came from. That's, that's rather hotly debated. I mean, the term in its current usage, cyborg, cybernetic organism, uh, generally comes from the work of Klein and Kleins in, in 1960. And um, as I said in the talk, they were uh, looking at that from a point of view of biomechanically augmenting humans uh, for space travel. Uh, and that, that's, an, that's an, uh, definitely an early application of this sort of technology. It's something you see coming up again and again. It's something that you see more broadly in sci-fi. It's something things like Carl Sagan talked about on a more biological and DNA genetic point of view, whether if we were to ever go to the stars, we won't be humans with a species very much like us. So that's a genetic take on that. And their take was, of course, earlier, their take was more biomechanical, what if we bio, biomechanically augmented ourselves to allow spaceflight, to allow space travel. Uh, so the people have argued, you know, there's, there's various different start points to people saying whether something along the lines of a cyborg might have been, uh, might have been considered. Um, there is, I'm, I'm generally a little bit strict on the difference between cyborgs and androids. People often say, oh yeah, quite an interest in, in AI or robotics. Uh, and again, this area loans itself to a lot of debates over, over definitions, but a very broad one which I find quite handy to, to split up the discussions is that androids, AI, robotics often comes from a, from a, a technological, mechanical background and moves towards human intelligence or, or simil- similar levels of intelligence, whereas cyborg, cybernetic uh, augmentations generally come from a biological of human start point and they move towards greater integration with technology. So they often meet somewhere in the middle, but... Uh, but I, I, I tend to, just, just for the sake of discussion, to make sure that we're not talking about AI and not talking about robots, that I generally say it comes from, from that point of view. So you can go back and so there's, there's numerous sort of sci-fi authors who even in previous centuries wrote about that. I made a quick reference to Nudo with the silver hand in, um, in Irish mythology and how that meant he couldn't be king. You know, there's an early legal implication. He couldn't administratively fulfill that role because he had a, an augmentation. Uh, and then, yeah, right up to then the work of, of Klein and Kleins. Um, there's also the, the postmodern feminist theory version of, of cyborgs, uh, which is again in it set by, by Donna Haraway in the Cyborg Manifesto. And uh, then you'll notice since then there's been multiple differences. It's exploded in sci-fi uh, and also in academic discourse in various different disciplines. And, and people take a lot of these core uh, uh, sources and interpret them to mean totally different things, in particular Haraway's Cyborg Manifesto. Some people see it as quite a literal discussion of human augmentation. Some people see it as a purely theoretical discussion of, of uh, people's positions 
situation in society, men, women, people with disabilities and such. I think what's interesting about um, the Cyborg Manifesto and sort of the transhumanist movement in general is this focus on... um, uh, longevity, and this is very much, you know, what they're what they're focused on. It's sort of uh, cybernetics, um, uh, extending people's lifespan as opposed to maybe solving uh, problems that are around them. Would that be sort of fair to say? I think that's very much true, and and a lot of a lot of the, the sci-fi stuff certainly, um, and probably yeah, you know, a lot of the, the the DIY fringe elements, a lot of the the the, the biohackers, grinders, and transhumanists definitely see that as a goal, um, and I, of course. I also find that area fascinating, but I, I do think it's it's interestingly addressed in, in this subject uh, by people who look at it less as let's enhance our abilities and more as let's enhance our ability to perceive the world. We don't have to live longer, but maybe we can live being able to sense something we weren't previously able to sense. Um, so th- and that's an obvious reference to, to uh, uh, Neil Harbison's work and Moon Rebus's work and Cyborg Foundation and, and that sort of uh, thing. They also work in, in, in the arts as well as in, uh, in sort of activism uh, for cyborgs. Uh, and I, I think that's quite an interesting foil. I mean, they're, they're both quite important areas to discuss. Um, but it's, it's interesting to see that there are people who very much uh, say that it's not about extending, it's not about moving on from human limitations. It's not about focusing on what people's limitations are, uh, are not about focusing on how we can make someone live longer or in a very sort of measurable way better but simply along the lines of what have we changed the human experience? What have we allowed people? And they often, you know, Cyborg Foundation is sort of open to people coming up with different senses that they might want and they provide a space for people to talk about well, what if we could do this? How would we go about doing that? And they work with different collaborators who've done things such as being able to sense, you know, people behind you or sense the speed of things, the fingerboard having um, things in your fingers allowing you to sort of sense mechanical, uh, sense uh, electric sort of... uh, God, I'm... uh, uh, words going out of my head, but it feels like one of the interesting things about um, sort of the people that are at the forefront of sort of the applied cybernetics movement, if you will, um, Neil Harbison being able to uh, recreate synesthesia. Um, so tell me a little bit about uh, about his project. And it has sort of an interesting crossover um, between the idea of cybernetics as a, a medical procedure, which would be you know replacing an arm or a hand or, or what have you, uh, and a more consumerist um, approach where it's not necessarily a problem that needs solving, but something that's kind of cool anyway. Yeah, exactly. Harbison is a very interesting sort of in-between case. Uh, Against some of his collaborators, such as Moon Rebus, her sense, being able to sense seismic activity around the world is is fascinating and, you know, artistically, interestingly interpreted. But strictly speaking, it's not something people can normally sense. So it's entirely uh, optional. It's not, not, I wouldn't call it consumers, but it goes in that direction of people doing doing things because of their own interest. Um, Whereas Harbison's is an interesting, it straddles both sides because he was actually born colorblind. That was not a sense that he had in the sense that most people do have. Uh, And he has, whilst not solving that in a traditional sense, he doesn't perceive color in the same way other people do, he's he's able to perceive some version of color through sound. Um, And and for anyone who's interested in it, obviously a lot of people will have heard of it before, but, but hearing him describe exactly the first few weeks, exactly how he adapted to actually being able to sense that, to just purely fully internalizing that to that no longer seeming foreign and his brain simply um it's a very interesting example of sort of like neuroplasticity that people's brains very quickly will adapt to this new input and simply that's now how you perceive the world so it's it's interesting in that 
it's quite different. Most people don't have antennas in their head. It's new technology. It's it's a sense that no one else has. No one else perceives color through, apart from obviously potential synesthesia um, uh, cases on an individual basis. But but no one else senses color quite the way he does. And yet at the same time, it's replacing in many ways the sense that other people do have. So he's, he's very very interesting in between medical enhancement and medical correction. And of course you need to find a sympathetic doctor, if you will, to, to do the hard graft. And, you know, it's a system that isn't really in place yet, is it? No, and I mean, that's, that's one of the key points where I started uh, my, my investigations coming from sort of a, a legal background, looking at medical law, looking at liability. Um, that they often don't go into too much detail about this. Fortunately, Harbison has. Um, but to try and find out how do people actually get that done? Uh, sometimes people just simply aren't that interested in, in the legal implications or how it was medically done. Sometimes people are perhaps protecting whoever did it. Um, uh, but it's, it is interesting to see that almost anyone who's implanted this sort of technology has, uh, has encountered some problem, some legal hurdle, some hurdle with, with ethics or insurance is obviously the big one because liability is going to be a big issue here. Um, so Harbison's uh, description of how he went about it is quite interesting. Uh, he had to ask a number of doctors. I think at one point he had got someone who'd agreed to do it, but the hospital or ethics board who was in charge of they wouldn't let him do it. They said, you can't do it here. Um, and eventually he got someone to do it, and I think it was on the basis of anonymity because they didn't want to, they didn't want to be associated with this for the various different reputational and uh, liability implications. So that's, that's still a big issue. And one of the things I brought up in my talk is that's where we're a lot of the more consumer versions of things go towards body modifiers and, and people doing it entirely by themselves. There are more more extreme ones, full subdermal implants, but it's very often done by hobbyists or people who are real, very, very much uh, involved in the area and willing to take not insignificant medical risks in implanting technology in their own bodies because it's not, it's not easy to get, uh, to get medics involved in this. So when, when we talk about the role of body modification people, you know, tattoo artists, people that do piercings, this sort of thing, uh, of course they're not going to do big neural implants or anything like that. So what kind of work are they doing at the moment? Well, at the moment, um, particularly in, in the grinder movement, so the sort of uh, DIY uh, body implantations, they do anything from, from subdermal uh, uh, LEDs to, uh, to chips, uh, such as those provided by, by Dangerous Things um, for RFID, uh, for transmitting codes or, or holding small amounts of data, often implanted in the, in the hands or the arms somewhere. Uh, so there's also North Sense as well, which is set up by, by Harbison and Rebus uh, and, and some collaborators, which um, is based very interestingly on being attached to the body by barbell piercings. So that's uh, generally placed in the center of the chest and it, it, it vibrates when facing north. Uh, so it gives someone a new sense, a north sense. And uh, it, it's particularly interesting from my point of view that the way they went with was not um, fully subdermal, was not particularly complicatedly attached to the body. They were like, we will do this with barbell piercing, something that's quite easily accessible. Most people will be able to find a piercer or a body modifier nearby who's done that. They do their best to warn people, you should make sure that the person who, who does this has expertise in this area, has, if available, a certification in this kind of piercing. Um, but at the same time, it's not a legally regulated area. Uh, it's, it's not... An, pe these people are not medics. I don't know the, the intricacies of how insurance works in this area, but it obviously wouldn't be the same as for a general surgeon. Um, so it's, it's certainly at the moment, for the most part, smaller, lower level, um, very lightly subdermal implants. Um, 
and there's also then the uh, the cases there there are more complicated ones um, but very often that's people done themselves either people with a medical background or self-taught abilities to do basic surgery have often in some cases put more uh, more sophisticated or more deeply implanted materials in their body one of um, the things that we're starting to see is sort of tests of what are the limits of what cybernetics can do at the moment, whether it is solving a simple problem or whether it's something much more, um, much more fundamental. I think one of the great uh, examples was Oscar, Oscar Pistorius and, and the whole Blade Runner thing. How far are we along the road of cybernetics either replacing or being as good as their sort of the, the current human model, if you will? Yeah, well, I think the, the Pistorius case is, is the, the classic case and probably the most in-depth legally analysed at the moment as to what, what point do we, do we draw a line between correction and enhancement. Um, now, to be honest, if you want to look for, for from a legal point of view for, for analogies for this, the best place to go is plastic surgery um, because it's, it's, it's an area which has the same issues. Some people will argue that it, it really is a, a medical procedure with a medical... And it, it depends very much on the, on, the, on the individual case. And most plastic surgeries stem from initially a corrective surgery to give someone a better quality of life. And some people will argue that all plastic surgeries have that aim to give someone a better quality of life. So it's, it's a very good area to use as an analogy for this. Um, but then you get more severe cases, such as prostheses and... Um, if you look at the, the Pistorius case, there were opinions looking at the same facts saying totally different things. And people were saying there's no way someone who, who, has, who has two prostheses can ever find things as easy to do um, as, as people with, with two fully functioning legs. And on the other hand, people said, but no, but it involves less energy. Therefore, he has an advantage. Uh, other people came back and said, no, it might involve less energy in, by a certain measurement, but there are other things which, needs to be, which need to be corrected for. And ultimately, they decided um, that, uh, again, I'm worrying, don't quote me on this, but I'm fairly certain, um, they decided that he could actually compete because it, uh, it was a case of, there were both advantages and disadvantages, but ultimately they, they balanced each other out. Uh, so that, w- that was, a, I suppose, an early case where people said, okay, this, does, this is enhancement in a way. It, it allows you to do things that other people can't, but it's also balanced out by the fact that it's, it's corrective of, of a disadvantage. So then there's, there is the potential where people simply add brand new senses, brand new abilities, uh, enhancing current abilities or, or granting new ones, uh, and then there's, there's not as much case law in that area. But that's something which seems quite likely to happen in the next 10, 20, 30 years. I think what's interesting about that case is that you need a baseline. You need to go, well, X was a fantastic athlete, then this happened, now he's had this procedure done, and he's either better or worse. Without that sort of baseline comparison, it really is hard to, to know for sure if uh, Oscar Pistorius actually did have that much of a competitive advantage. I mean, he could have been a very mediocre runner, a very medi- uh, mediocre athlete in general. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, again, sports law, sports arbitration is, is probably the, one of the best areas where you see a lot of these examples, um, is that to, to try and decide what is or isn't correction or enhancement uh, requires an, an arbitrary measurement of what is normal, uh, which you know, is A, difficult to come up with, and, and B, once come up with, very difficult to defend as, as, as truly useful. Um, for example, again, I mentioned in my talk, Julian Savalescu, who's the uh, Professor of Practical Ethics in, in the University of Oxford. Uh, he's written a number of things on the area of, of doping and of, of uh, biological and genetic enhancement in sports, and has essentially pointed out that an awful lot of, of, of sports law and sports arbitration is essentially just 
everyone's agreed on this arbitrary line. People know it's more or less arbitrary, but they've, they've agreed on it. And you still see, you know, every few years there's some new technology, either it's a new type of sort of uh, wetsuit for swimming or it's a new type of training. It's training at high altitudes. It's, it's blood doping. And people have to essentially look at this and go, well, how close is this to biological? How close is this to natural? Um, people can argue, you know, the, the, the sheer fact that, that men and women's sports are generally separated into two different categories. People can argue, well, is, is that fair? Um, if people are separated into categories based on broad generalizations of gender, should we separate people into categories based on other biological broad generalizations, which I'm definitely not going to go into detail on. But you, you see where the problem is. Ultimately, all of these distinctions are are relatively arbitrary and to some extent they have to be if you're going to make a distinction at all um, and it is much the same with uh, with technology when there's a biomechanical technology it's easier to say well look that's not made out of person that's made out of metal that's made out of plastic um, but it, it's particularly complicated when it's when it's biological or genetic but even with biomechanical the, the problem is still there that it's essentially going to be an arbitrary line drawn in a lot of cases a big problem that we're going to see uh, from next year, I guess, in 2018, when the General Data Protection Regulation comes in, is um, the idea of data will have to be so tightly controlled, you will have to have an excuse for gathering or storing every single piece of information about anything. When you're dealing with people that use cybernetic implants, these, these are devices that are going to rely on constant feedback from the body um, and, I guess, could be potentially hackable from a distance. I mean, we've seen it in... in um, in fiction already, of course, we have. But um, uh, when people are going to start designing uh, body modifications, is this the sort of concern that's going to have to be front and centre? Yeah, definitely. And that's something I feel quite strongly about. And a number of the different sort of fora where, where I've worked or talked to people about this sort of things. And I, an awful lot of the people who first got me interested in this area are constantly campaigning to get more involvement of, of ethicists and lawyers in the beginning of technology. Now, that goes that goes across the board for, for social media, for various different data-intensive technologies, but particularly for medical technology. Uh, and it is an issue. I mean, that, that's how innovation works, unfortunately, at the moment, is the engineers come up with something, the, market, the marketing people sell it, uh, and if enough people buy into it that it causes problems, then they call in the lawyers, um, and very, very much at that point, it's often, it's often too tied up with with, with money and competition law and and uh, and um, intellectual property law to really try and get down to the brass tacks of, of the issues with liability, the issues with ethics, the issues with um, with data protection. Uh, but yeah, data protection is going to be more and more of a significant area for for these sorts of companies. Um, I mentioned in, in the talk as well that. Uh, the, the drive towards putting everything on the Internet of Things at the moment has its obvious flaws and risks. Um, and it's, it's definitely an issue which you, uh, which you notice people criticizing people in the, in the sort of sphere who talk about these things from an academic point of view, that there's not always a necessity to have all of these devices, particularly medical devices, to have them online, to have them sending data to a central database, to the cloud somewhere. An awful lot of this can be in a closed loop in closed loop system either within the body or paired with a smartphone paired with it doesn't always not all of this data needs to be sent to uh to whoever made whoever made or manufactured or runs the platform for which uh through which this technology works Uh, and that's a design issue and that's a design issue which may work better if people if if ethicists and lawyers were involved earlier on um in earlier stages of, of designing these sort of medical uh devices but it's it's definitely something which is going to become even more problematic uh, with GDPR. But it's it's also 
largely ignored. Even even under current data protection law, people largely ignore the, the requirements that they do have, and it's it's often quite difficult to get to bring a case, particularly in somewhere like the UK or Ireland or America. Access to courts is perhaps not quite as efficient or easy as it is in places like um, places like Germany. Uh, but you you notice that it's it's a default position that we gather all the data and sure look we might need it and uh, we might be able to set up we might be able to do something with it but let's write the terms and conditions and and that says essentially we can use everything and a privacy policy that says we can use everything unless you know and and that's that's another problem is that consumers often don't realize that just because something's written in the terms and conditions of privacy policy doesn't mean it's true it doesn't mean it's legally enforceable but if if people don't have easy access to to getting this um, either going to the Data Protection Commissioner or, or the equivalent body to to look at this and say whether this is whether this is uh, correct or not, or to go before the court and simply take someone to court and sue them over it. Uh, it's hard to get clarity on these sorts of of issues, but hopefully the the GDPR will actually clarify an awful lot of that because it's put it in fairly clear wording. But despite that ambition, it is still there's there's a lot of scope for for interpretation as to what does and doesn't uh, suffice as consent and what 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 is or is not allowed uh, to be done with with various data so I, I imagine a lot of the a lot of these issues will continue um, one sort of penultimate issue we'd like to talk about is the idea of uh, bodily autonomy if you get into a car crash for example and you're you're badly injured and you know you're brought into hospital and somebody says okay we can do X, Y, we can replace this limb, we can replace that limb. Where does that issue of consent arise from? I mean, you, you are you know, changing your body at a very fundamental level, and it could be something that you have no say in whatsoever. Or say something happens to you on the job. Um, is this something employers will have to look at in terms of taking uh, extraordinary measures to save people? Yeah, that's that's a particularly interesting area for myself. That was one of the one of the early areas that I looked at um, was about consent to, towards these sorts of uh, these sorts of procedures. Um, again, I talked in the talk a little bit about uh, professional medical negligence duties of care and um, the general approved practice test. Now, there have been various tests over, particularly uh, you know most most uh, familiar with the UK and Irish positions. Um, where you've had a move over the last 100, 150 years from a very professional doctor-centric model where doctor knows best uh, towards more and more personal autonomy, uh, decision-making, very strong requirements for, for informed consent. Um, now, th- that's, that's at, a, at a theoretical level. There's still at a practical level often quite a lot of deference towards the generally approved practice, towards what the professionals, if they can find sufficient number of people in their area who agree that this is, this is how things are done or this is an appropriate way to do things, generally a medical professional uh, is, is covered. They're not liable if they've followed that, unless, unless in cases, extraordinary cases, where the practice is quite obviously faulty. Uh, and in that case, it doesn't matter even if everyone does it in a court. They may simply decide, look, this was obviously faulty. No one should have been doing this. Um, but yeah, the, the case that you, you threw out there was, was one that I find particularly interesting, which is if someone is injured, when is that? how is that decision reached as to whether or not to... The example I often throw out is if prostheses, arm prostheses, for example, get good enough that they maybe give you back 80% of function of a normal functioning human arm, and uh, which is much, much beyond what they currently do, but just say that it gets to that point, uh, and someone is, has their arm very badly mangled in a, in a farm accident, in farm machinery, if someone comes in to, um, into an accident emergency and they have to 
the, the doctor has to, and it gets particularly complicated if the person is uh, is unconscious. I mean, that, but again, there there are numerous cases already exist for um, in medical law and medical professional medical negligence law as to look what happens if someone's unconscious. You know, where, when can you can presume consent? When can you do something in emergency cases? So it's not like there is no law in this area. You simply need to figure out if you can transpose it over to these new situations or not. Um, but as I was saying, if it turns out you come in and the doctor says, look, you can, there's only really a chance of giving this person back between 40 and 60% of the, of the uh, functioning of their arm. Uh, first of all, is the doctor allowed to make that decision? If you're unconscious, they're like, say, well, look, I can, give, I can give this person back much more functioning if I, if I amputate the arm now. And again, for this hypothetical situation, we're saying for whatever reason, I don't know if this is a thing or not, but for whatever reason, it will function better if we amputate now. Um, or for legal and ethical reasons, they say we can amputate now because it's an emergency situation. But if we fix the arm and they come back in a month's time and say, actually, look, I really want to, this is quite mangled. I want to, this amputated and I want a prosthetic. They say, we can't now. We fixed it enough that we can't now uh, voluntarily or, or um, uh, electively amputate your arm and, and put something there. So we, first of all, can, can the doctor do that? Will they be covered? Are they liable? Uh, what if the person wakes up and, and they have quite strong moral convictions against against uh, biomechanical augmentation? They say, I don't want this. I feel like a freak. Um, uh, or if the person wakes up, the doctor is maybe quite conservative. Um, maybe they have moral problems with it. Or maybe they simply say, I could get sued. And I think that generally most doctors, or at least a significant minority of doctors, would say, look, 30% of human arm is better than 80% function with a mechanical arm. And they do that, and the person wakes up and says, I can't believe you did this. I now can't get a doctor to agree to, to, to remove this arm and replace it. Uh, can they then be sued? Is there a duty of care there that the doctor actually has to, has to take the best decision, the decision which is most likely to give the person function? And again, that's going to require huge amounts of, of, of legal and philosophical wrangling to decide whether, um, whether people... Uh, whether that's considered part of bodily integrity, whether whether that's part of personhood is to give someone back function or to give someone back their body, biologically their body. So that's going to be an issue, which I imagine is, is quite likely to crop up and will require significant levels of thinking and probably a little bit of complicated litigation. And sort of a, a last question, and, and we've touched upon it before, is... Um, what you get back in terms of uh, a bodily replacement, whether it will be 30% of function, whether it will be superior function. Um, could, we, could we start looking at the issue of, okay, here's an arm. It actually does a lot more th- than what an arm does. You know, you can, it's got compartments in it that you could potentially put weapons in it. No. Um, it's got, you know, the ability to crush, some, to crush things, you know. Should we start looking at, down the road, I guess, at registering certain kinds of prosthesis and say, okay, look, you have a, a reasonable case for actually using this, that's fine, or, you know, should it, should it be fairly laissez-faire? Yeah, I mean, that's, <clears throat> that's a, a particularly tricky area. That's one in, I think, a, an earlier version of this uh, presentation when I gave it, I had... Uh, uh, an analogy drawn with the Mutant Registration Act. Um, so I figured that the comic book analogy works quite well in that it's it's a very fraught area. It's a very sort of uh, philosophically fraught and emotive area is at what point do people have to, to register? Do people have to declare that they have enhanced abilities? Um, so it, it w- could be particularly complicated. Um, you've already noticed the societal impact against it and some of the sort of minor legal impacts in things such as um, uh, Google Glass. So, you know, places people were uncomfortable, ba- people banned it from from their uh, from their areas, from their workplaces, from their establishments. Um, so you, it's it's definitely a, a, tr- a tricky question as to as to whether or not, uh, and it will depend very much on, on the functions that that these prostheses uh, have, whether or not this is going to be something which uh, has to be registered, which people have to declare, which people are allowed to have at all.
That was Niall Kitson talking to Shane Patrick McNamee. You can read more about him on his blog at theundisciplined.com. That's our show for this week. Remember, you can get all the Irish tech news with hourly updates and daily newsletters and more from techcentral.ie, as well as our weekly tech radio show here online and broadcast every Friday at 6pm on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. Until next week, from myself, Dusty Rhodes, and from Niall Kitson, thanks so much for listening. Have a great weekend. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com. Tech Central.